Here we are for the next uh, edition of the War on the Rocks podcast series. we got a really fun group here tonight at the lovely Jefferson Hotel Bar in the Cabinet Room to talk about nuclear strategy. This is a sort of follow-on from our last podcast on the topic where we talked about Cold War nuclear strategy. I'm just going to walk through who we have here and ask them to say hello. First, we got Bridge Colby, who actually just started a new fellowship at the Center for New American Security. Congratulations, Bridge. Thanks very much, Ron. Glad to be here. And we got Tom Moore, who's a veteran on the Hill in the Senate, where he worked for Senator Luger for a number of years That's on me. strategic nuclear issues. Uh, we have Bill Rosenau, senior social scientist at the Center for a New... I'm sorry, Center for Naval Analyses. He's also my life coach, which is more important. <laughs> <laughs> and we we'll got talk best dressed man in the room. He's also the... Well, he's the best dressed... In any room. Best dressed man. I was about to say, exactly. are you critiquing outfits this evening? Yeah, we, no, we're going <laughs> to... Should we give the outfits soon? I think we should give a description of what he's Senator wearing. <laughs> All right. Usha, you're the woman, so it'll sound more appropriate. What, what, is Bill, what does Bill have on tonight? Oh, I don't want to... This is, by the way, this is Usha, the director of digital outreach the Center for <laughs> Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and resident fashion non-expert. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to understand what you're wearing. Yeah. You can be honest. I'm wearing pajamas with little soccer balls. <laughs> <laughs> well, way to ruin the illusion for the audience at home. No, he's wearing a cool rust-colored pair of pants with zippers up the side that I quite oh. like. Um, I noticed the zippers. Very seventies. Is that really rust? No, it's not okay. rust. What would you call okay. it? Like I don't know. Uh, okay. 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 Yeah. Rust brick pumpkin. I think it's <laughs> orange would be my. And. Uh, <laughs> And a blue and white striped shirt, a blue tie, and a. Is that does that count as tweed? You see how yeah, much I know. Tweed? Yeah, yeah tweed. Sure. In fact, half of the ties in the, in, in, tonight are knit. Yes, are they? Yeah. That's good news. Oh. I'm a little worried you noticed that, Bridge. Oh yeah. Uh, so more importantly, <laughs> Usha is one of the assistant editors of War in the Rocks, where she's been a core part of our team and a major part of our success. And we have Stanley Oman, Stanley Orman, who uh, is the author of Uncivil Civil Servant. Uh, which you should all buy, and we'll be linking to it on the page where you're listening to this very podcast. He is also a veteran of the UK strategic arms community. He actually saved the US and UK nuclear arsenal at one point in the 50s. You have a good memory. Would you uh, just, just, mind, just mind retelling that story really quickly for the audience, because it's such a great story. Well, I was, I was asked to look at why there was such deterioration inside a nuclear warhead. And uh, I studied the uranium water reaction and found the whole mechanism. Uh, I totally upset my, the head of my division by suggesting that by looking at small uranium rods in very carefully controlled conditions, I could explain what was happening in a complex warhead. And he thought I would start raving mad. But I did find out what was happening. Um, it was a complex series of reactions in which water from plastics inside the weapon were reacting with uranium. In the absence of oxygen, they were producing hydrogen. The hydrogen was migrating into a very sensitive area and destroying some electronics which were necessary to initiate the whole nuclear device. Uh, fortunately, I was able to find a way around that simple one, fill, it, fill the system with air instead of uh, nitrogen and the oxygen in the atmosphere, in, strangely enough, inhibited the uranium water reaction. So it went about 50 times slower than in the absence of oxygen. Very complex situation, but it was fun and we were able to 
allow the UK systems to um, operate without constant evacuation. And the Americans then revealed to us, thank you very much for finding out, we found out 75% of our stockpile would not have functioned as a nuclear device until you sent us the report. <laughs> little, little scary. That's the story. That time. <laughs> so let's get started. we got a lot of issues to cover in nuclear strategy, and this is something that just hasn't gotten as much attention in the you know, popular press, at least, when we've been faced with these wars in Iraq, eh, where there turns out there was no WMD. Um, Afghanistan and elsewhere where nuclear issues haven't been really central to these conflicts. But uh, there's a lot of things that have happened recently and it's sort of returning to the forefront as an important strategic issue that people are starting to talk about again. Um, something minor that may, might point to something major, there was a big cheating scandal that was uncovered where there were some military officers, There's a, I think they called it a cheating ring or something like that, cheating on their nuclear qualifications test. Someone more knowledgeable on that, maybe you can talk about that, Tom. Well, I've never taken one, so I don't know how knowledgeable I actually can be about the actual test. Look, uh, it's not good news. I'm not happy about it. Um, I'm not happy it's public, and I'm not happy the fact of it is public. But I'm also not happy about what's been revealed. But I think it's more of a symptom than a problem, uh, if I can be medical for a moment. If you tell somebody they have the most important job in the world repeatedly for many, many, many years, but don't act like that in terms of resources, budget, or priority, then they will tend not to be as felicitous as they otherwise might be with regard to detail. And that's a very dangerous thing in nuclear weapons, but it's, I would say, systemic. It's a symptom of the fact that for many years these people have basically been told you don't matter, whether it's with regard to the overall Air Force which I would argue does not want to resource the nuclear mission the way it should, uh, whether it's regard, with regard to politics. Um, you know, many people, even uh, Bridge and I sometimes might disagree. The ICBM force as a whole could be viewed either as a warhead sink or something that just makes someone's targeting a little more difficult or as an essential element of the triad uh, based on all kinds of things that you probably talked about or I gather you might have in your previous session on the Cold War, nuclear signaling and the like. My own view is that if you go all the way back to 2008, which isn't that far, something like the Schlesinger panel at DOD, the Schlesinger Phase Two report, which ought to be required reading, I think, for everybody, shows that when you don't resource the mission, you will get these natural atrophying effects with regard to personalities. It's a serious matter, cheating. I'm not saying it's not. And I'm not blaming anybody for what those people did. Certainly they didn't do anything that was right. But I am saying that we might not have seen that had there been different priority. You have said something which is very important. When I joined the British Atomic Energy Commission, and it was the Atomic Energy Authority in those days, we were told the work at Aldermaston was the most important thing to the government and people worked their socks off to devise the atomic and the hydrogen bombs which were our basic, our deterrent. But when a Labour government came in and didn't even want to acknowledge they had an Aldermaston, I saw the situation which was 
people can't see that I'm holding up the front of my book. He's plugging his book, and it's and an audio session. On it, on it, also have a dirty word on, on it. it. it does there's say a stamp, on and it. I brought the stamp <laughs> along because it was one I used on regular occasions, and it says bullshit. It does. I can confirm it says that. Right, and this summarised my problem with the way things were operated within government service. And you put your finger on it. If the government doesn't believe in what it's telling you to do, nobody's going to believe in what you're doing. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Can I ask a, a question as, a, as an amateur on this, amateur on the subject? That's usually an invitation <laughs> to failure on my part. <laughs> I, I doubt it. Not, not, not this group. Um, what about the other parts of the triad? I don't know. Are, is there conceivably the same sort of morale? Issues. I don't know. You're on a boomer, well, or you're I mean, the, flying the, it. You know, so the, there's a couple of things. So, the, so the, the submarine. So there's three legs of the triad. There's the submarine. There's mm-hmm. the, the land-based missiles, and there's the bomber. The, both the submariners and the bomber uh, pilots and crew have the ability to, to, to work in other kinds of missions. So submariners, they're not just in in the missile submarines. They also operate in what are called the attack submarines, which are more usually more exciting missions not necessarily but they're, more important, they're but different groups normally the, the no but they 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 do you can go in different assignments to different to different different submarines that 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 gives you more exposure yeah. um, uh, so you know you have a little more a little more uh, diversity in your career and the bombers bomber pilots the b52 pilots for instance or the b2 pilots these even the nuclear designated aircraft are also designated for conventional mission so they fly conventional missions uh, as well. So there's more. You feel like you're more in the fight. The thing about the ICBM guys is that they're, you know, underground in the, basically the most remote parts of the United States. You know, for a threat that seems quite remote. Uh, you know, many of us think it's it's enduringly important over the long term, but it is hard to maintain um, to, to to maintain uh, uh, morale. You know, versus the Cold War when the the missileers were some of the most prestigious postings in the Air Force. Do we still need a triad? Do you think that's still important? Yes. Guys, why? What if I'm going to say we go back to two? Let's just pick any two. What? Why are we less safe? I'm just trying to... Why are we less safe without ICBMs, SLBMs, and what? Gravity bombs and air-launched cruise missiles? Well, with, with, with one leg. Let's say we take out an entire oh, one leg we of take a nuclear triad. Well, um, I look at this... As a cost-saving measure. Partly from a foreign perspective some of the time. In other words from the perspective of a target, if I'm Russia, um, I have a pretty good sense for how the United States operates and trains and disperses its ICBMs and heavy bombers. I've watched them for a long time. I even get notifications about them under treaties. Um, But if you were to go to an all-submarine force with all of your megatons of destructive power under the water, um, I might be a little worried about that for a variety of reasons. It's less observable. Mm Um, Bridge in the past has said, why do we always assume the seas will be so opaque? Well, I assume they will be, based on current verification, satellite overhead imagery, and everything I know about how our social warning nets in the Atlantic worked during the Cold War. Um, the oceans are bad places where lots of nuclear strike capability can be put. If you're the United States, as opposed to the United Kingdom, your forces are observed much more closely than perhaps you might like by adversaries. Russia has always believed that submarine-launched ballistic missiles are fundamentally a preemptive weapon, which are used for first-strike capability against, in particular, with its W-88 warhead, a hardened ICBM silo. 
so Russia over the years has taken careful steps to mobilize its force on road mobile launchers that are harder to hit, non-stationary deployments of weapons. Specifically in response to... I would say primarily in response to a variety of things, namely their budget situation over the long term. They don't have the ability to buy submarines that work. Uh, They have an uh, an SLBM that may or may not work, the Bulava, with uh, its current submarine force, which if you look at the new start notification numbers, is not something that's alerted or deployed as much as its road mobile ICBM forces, which is frankly a cheap submarine on land. Uh, and you're the, still in a Cold War situation. Well, so no, you, you are talking about Russia. Well, I'm about to shift gears and please, not talk please about Please shift gears because Russia, I think, is not the problem. I days. disagree. Uh, if I'm on a day-to-day basis looking at the nuclear mission, then I have to look who my adversary might be. Yeah, Russia's the only country. Russia's the only country that can deliver destructive capability to my shores in eight to thirty minutes. But but we're more concerned with with We have uh, a variety of concerns. Well I think we're more concerned with deterring other nations. Like well, can I, can, I, can I make a pitch for the triad, too? I mean, it's slightly different than Tom's, which I think was, you know, well put, but but that um, you asked a good question, Ryan, and let's look at it from a kind of a cost-benefit point of view, right? So, first off, we've had a triad for 65 years. The United States not only deters attacks on itself, but it also deters attacks on its allies and partners. And we do that because we think overall it has stabilizing impact on the, on the international order. Maybe that's wrong, but... We kind of know what it's. We know that it works, and the alternative is untested. And when we tried a more insularist posture, say after World War One, it didn't end up so well. I, I'm so, not. I'm not surprised that someone who worked at Aldermaston is unimpressed with a triad. Uh, <laughs> to be to be a little undiplomatic. Can you explain to our readers why? Oh uh, yes. Well, the United Kingdom currently only deploys its nuclear weapons aboard submarines, and Correct. may not do so in the future. I Absolutely don't know. Right. I'll greatly look forward to ground launch cruise missile deployments in Scotland. But anyway. <laughs> um, We've been through that once before. I know. <laughs> That's why I raised it. But uh, to come back to to the question, uh, why a triad? Um, because the United States, as Bridge alludes to, although I'll be more succinct, has alliance commitments other people don't. Correct. And I don't know that if I'm in Northeast Asia, a topic that is out current, based on what uh, North Korea may or may not do in the next few weeks, I can place all my faith in submarines under the water, and this gets back to the point I was making about, and I should have made, and I was about to make, until we went off in different directions, not just our adversaries, but how our allies can observe us. And subs at sea, uh, I often make a joke, I I don't know, but I don't know if an umbrella is standard issue to to Ohio-class crews. Meaning, I don't know if nuclear umbrellas work without visible reassurance in theater. And in particular, I'm very concerned about the status of both reactor programs and fissile material on the Korean Peninsula, South and North, and in Japan, frankly. So you're saying that if if our allies don't see the subs, they don't know they're there and they don't feel protected, is what you're saying? You can do port calls, but this has been an extensively examined subject in a lot of places I've been in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lord knows, the United States Navy is sacred and doesn't like to tell anybody what it's doing, sometimes even Washington. So... Uh, and that's true, because we can't let the adversary know where our SS beings no, are. But, but I think, just, just to kind of finish, finish the thought, I mean, Sorry. it's, you know, the, the, the benefits of the triad, the benefits of the triad are, are, are there. Um, uh, it's possible, as some allege, that, that, it's, that it's over-determined, that it's overkill. There's sort of over-deterrence. 
Um, but the question is, um, that may be true, but the risks potentially are high, right? Because when we're making decisions about the Triad, we're making decisions after 2080. The last ballistic missile submarine replacement will go out of the force sometime around 2080. So we have to think of that environment, and we, ha we do have to think about the technology. We do have to think about open ocean targeting. We do have to think about new ways of, of anti-submarine warfare. You also have to consider the, the reality that, that there are different aspects of different parts of the, of the U.S. nuclear triad. There are different effects that they can create, not only in signaling, but in actual sort of the way the weapons actually operate or the platforms actually operate. Um, so when I look at it, I say, you know, China is a growing power. There are disruptive technologies. Russia is getting back in the military game. We also have rogue states that may be able to find asymmetric capabilities. Now, if what I were talking about in recapitalizing the triad were going to cost a trillion dollars over 10 years, we would need to give a correlatively greater degree of scrutiny. But according to what the Congressional Budget Office says, mm. it's going to be about $30 billion a year. That's about 5% of the defense budget. Now, it's going to rise a little bit in the 2020s and 2030s, but a lot of that is the ballistic missile submarine. So my feeling is we get a lot of assurance over our core national security interests, broadly defined, for a relatively reasonable price. Well, Why are we well, debating? Uh, and, and just to add into that, a little Cold War touch. I yeah. mean, Eisenhower administration. Right. Right. I mean, nukes were partly a perceived by the senior president. Yeah. It's a, it's a cost-saving measure. Yeah. Bang for your buck compared to conventional it, it, forces. Well, I want to dig That relative cheapness right. is... Is still Look, there. Right? So I find it I find it bizarre yeah. that there's actually this focus on the economic thing. And you've seen it over the last the course of the last year, because I feel like some of the the, the air is going out of this sort of Prague agenda balloon, and so there's a desire to shift the kind of the focus of attack, if you will. I mean, not to make it too adversarial, but but on, on the budgetary issue, which in a sense is a red herring. Well, well budget, for the Navy, it's not though, is it? But for Navy, no. it's not. But, but nobody, dig into that. nobody disputes the value of the submarine. Even say Cato, which put out a you know very interesting and well thought out piece arguing for a monet, they didn't dispute the value and merit of the ballistic missile submarine, which is by far the most yeah. expensive. And all of us would agree is the most valuable part of the triad. But just because it's the most valuable part of the triad doesn't mean it's sufficient. Uh, except the senators who have bomber and ICBM. Well, sure. Yeah, just, but if you're looking at the Navy, you're, you're buying, you're recapitalizing right. SSBNX, you're you, buying fewer of something else. But right. You, well, and so well, maybe that's well, a pressing question. Yeah. You raised a point much earlier, which is the Navy can use its forces in a multiplicity of ways. The Air Force can. Well, the Navy has dual capability. Yeah, more than dual capability. You're using the the staff in in a multiple. Well, staff, but not the ballistic missile submarine is a single mission. But but the people who are manning the land-based missiles are stuck down that hole, and like it or not, they are not going to maintain this enthusiasm. Well, but they so can get they can get into space operations. There are there are there are different crew paths. But, I mean, it, but what they do is important. You, very that, important it is very important, but I don't believe it's viewed as such these well, days. Well, that's and yeah. that's one of the problems. But but Ryan, trying. to your point about the 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 shipbuilding, that is a serious issue in the twenty twenties and twenty thirties as this as this shipbuilding budget is going to come up. And I think Bill raised the Eisenhower example. Very sagely, because and Bill's a sage guy. Bill is a sage. I'd say he's sagacious. He's dressed as way a sage. Too far. He's dressed um, as a sage. <laughs> but well dressed he's as prophetic. Even. But but <laughs> I like the, that prophetic. The the, the the point is, is that we need we we actually are going to we're getting to the point where we actually need to make choices among defense Amen. programs. 
And that's and the, the debate shouldn't just be among the triad or the various parts of the nuclear program, but also um, among the defense programs in general. Like Amen. for instance, the Congress voted back in the Abrams tank, you know, which is a phenomenal piece of machinery, but there's really no, there's no plausible for, need for, for it. For why? There's, there's no need for more. There's well, need there's for it. Yeah, you don't need, need for to keep some. Yeah, exactly. More. You don't need to build more. <coughs> so that's 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 the point about the shipbuilding budget is that we should be saying we need to resource the Navy's full shipboarding building budget and take where appropriate from other parts of the defense program. I, I think you have to ask yourself what the opportunity cost of not having a triad would be. Um, and as Bridge said, a lot of the groups uh, that are active on this question, I'll, I'll be as diplomatic as he was, have argued that uh, you know we could spend you know. Six billion dollars on something else. We could spend two billion on something else. Um, I was sort of present at the creation, however, if you will, of the current political deal, which was we will ratify the New START treaty if you will fund modernization. President Obama certified to that mm. in February of 2011. I believe it was February 4th or 3rd, a few days before the treaty came into force. Pursuant to the Senate's resolution of device and consent, he said we would have a triad. And he has been consistently committed to that, whether it's in uh, nuclear strategy. We just had a report, Bridge can correct me, I can't remember what it's called, presidential guidance just uh, done and reported to Congress, validates a triad. Everything we've done has been validating a triad, except the budgets. And consistent with what I started with when you asked about the cheating on these proficiency exams, People read budgets more than they read strategy documents, Follow the and money. that's where people get their paycheck. Um, if I were sitting in, and I never have, the Office of Secretary of Defense 20 years ago, I probably would have heard from the two-star level up in the Air Force someone arguing against an air launch cruise missile and an intercontinental ballistic missile. The Air Force needs to resource this requirement and think more seriously about it. Um, that's just a, a service critique I provide. I'm not saying that the Bridge wrote a War on the Rocks article on that very mm -hmm. thing, actually. And uh, Tom and I have written something uh, we did. on the subject a while ago, too. Uh, yes. So it's part and parcel of where I started. The Air Force culture fights conventional wars every day. Uh, but conventional forces don't provide nuclear deterrence. Nuclear weapons, too. And strategic. not many people... Well, strategic and other. Not many people in the Air Force who are really above an 06 today remember any of those times, and I'm not begging for the return of Curtis LeMay, by the way, I'm just saying <laughs> Much that, misunderstood. But if you could. <laughs> that, that, if you well, could. I tell ran on the pro, <laughs> or I should yeah, say. That's so you can hear uh, that. Yeah, he regret that, right? Well, let's be clear to listeners what that was. He was the against civil thing. rights. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, small mistake later on. Yeah, um, it's a big mistake, actually. Thank you. Uh, with the record show. Yeah, exactly. In any case, I think the Air Force needs yeah. to rethink why it's in the nuclear business, but it shouldn't do that on its own. And mm -hmm. in this administration, to be quite frank, um, they don't feel like that there's political support above and below those generals that value their careers for the next three or four years. And that's something that military politics and service politics always dictate against innovative thinking or thinking beyond where we are. You know, Bob Gates writes in his book, he's angry about the fact that the services seem to always be more interested in the wars we will fight rather than the ones we are fighting. Uh, well, one of the wars it's not theoretically will fight or could have to fight is a nuclear war. I, you know, I, with all due respect, will beg to differ with anybody that says different. 
And they don't do that on a day-to-day -day basis. If you're a staff officer in a command that doesn't have nuclear weapons involved in it, um, you know, we can talk about pro global strike, and we can even talk about the effectuation of global strike command in the United States, which was itself a response to the Air Force's non-handling of the nuclear mission, in my opinion. But I don't agree with where we've gone as a service culture the last 20 years. I think political leadership need to signal to the Air Force this is a priority, not because of the inherent unsafety of what they do with what we have, but because of the value of what it may do in the future. But right. you, you, you were emphasizing the President's support for the triad. What he hasn't supported is the nuclear warheads themselves. That, has de that is deteriorating and deteriorating at a rate where it's bordering on non-recoverable. He has supported neither the delivery systems nor the warheads, to be quite right. clear, right. Uh, in his budget requests. And, quite frankly, in what's been appropriate, we're about $2 billion short over the last few years with regard to where we should have been or we were told we would be in 2010. But what's even more concerning to me is the loss of expertise. That's a big problem across I mean, government. I mean, you sit here as someone who knew what you were doing when you were doing it, and I, I trust implicitly everything you say. Uh, there are many people I know in the national labs who are now solely retired, yeah. uh, and all of them knew what we were trying to do when we did it with some of these warheads. Um, you, know, you worked at Old Maston, so I'm sure I'll, I'll hear something about scaling in a little bit, but in any case, we have a lot of workheads that come from a lot of different eras when our technology was different. That's and right. we have now gone to a 3 plus 2 or a 5 strategy for 5 warheads. Um, that's not a strategy so much as it's bounding the uncertainties and the problems we have. Uh, but the margins of uncertainty are different. What happens is there's, there's so many components inside oh. a warhead which age. And when you go to remanufacture, it's a Do you think you need to ultimately need to test, Stanley? You won't have the same assurance that you had without tests. Yes. And I was about to say, one of the reasons why the nuclear mission has been delayed is a lot of people keep saying, well, when we ratify the CTBT, all this will become clear. That's right. And that's, that's baloney. Absolutely. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. We're going we're gonna to move on to Russia. It, ma it makes it worse, not better. So there's been some alleged treaty violations or allegations of treaty violations on Russia. Can you guys talk a bit about that? Explain to our... Well, the New York Times reported that um, Russia has apparently developed a... Uh, well, that the United... The, the New York Times yeah. reported that, that, that uh, the United States had told its NATO allies that the U.S. Uh, assesses that the Russians had developed a ground-launched cruise missile system, which is a direct violation direct. of the Intermediate, uh, intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Intermediate Ranges. Ranges. Uh, and that and that there's also the range is five to oh yeah five hundred to fifty five hundred kilometers yes. um, very good yeah. full march and <laughs> thank you and the uh, you can't get bridge off guard he's yeah. just he's always on with this and that the Russians have also quote unquote circumvented or circumvened I guess or otherwise um, uh, maybe even violated the treaty by developing a uh, ballistic missile uh, basically uh, oriented to in intermediate range to w uh, which they have tested to. Um, uh, intercontinental ranges. It's a long a range which they could use. On what the are the mechanisms in the treaty for mm -hmm. so very extensive <clears throat> mechanisms for monitoring and verification, some of which have, have elapsed, but all of them all, elapsed. I guess all of them elapsed. All of them right? elapsed. Once you achieved reduction of all the systems that were governed, which were basically SS-20s and Pershing-2s right. and 1s, 
Yeah, that's right. The Vatkinsk Vatkinsk is a situation in Russia where the first stage of those missiles has been produced for years. Those missiles had a commonality with the SS-25, which was a strategic range system governed under strategic arms control. But the first stage was in common with the SS-20, which was an intermediate range system (laughs) that the Soviets deployed. Can Can you translate that? I look at Middle yeah. Eastern insurgency. <laughs> so if I, wanted, if I wanted to launch one of these, <laughs> if I wanted to launch an SS-20 at the United Kingdom, I probably could on a good day, but most of Western Europe was in my targeting range if I positioned these things uh, as far as far west as Are I you far. Russia in this scenario, or are you just you with a nuke in your hand? Ah, well, uh, in this situation, you're asking me a question about me, and I am me. I'm never All Russian. Right. So right. uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, like, I know they did, based on no small part, the declassified minutes of meetings Gorbachev had in the 80s with the Supreme Soviet, where they were talking about the SS-20 and what they thought its mission was and mm-hmm. what it could do. And whether or not it was a good idea to sacrifice all of these things. Um, I, I, I yearn for a day when we'll be able to see similar transparency from Putin. But anyway. <laughs> well, let me, let me just. So, uh, so the, sorry, go ahead. The, the, um, just to, to finish your, your, your question, Ryan, I mean, so basically, that's, rel- that's quite kind of mechanistic and, and almost legalistic sounding. But, you know, basically what INF was was an agreement to kill all. Ground-launched um, uh, missiles uh, uh, of most ranges, actually, uh, that, that 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 covered the European theater. The European and what theater. what you know, if what the New York Times is reporting is true, what it's what it suggests is that the Russians have made a strategic decision um, to basically ignore uh, or flout the, the the treaty rather than rather than withdraw from it. Um, uh, you know, if we if we take what Bob Gates uh, says is true, which I think we have every reason to do so. He was approached by Sergei Lavrov. Uh, Ivanov. By, oh, by Ivanov, sorry. Um, uh, in, I think, 2007, uh, to withdraw from, the, um, to withdraw from the, the INF Treaty. So the Russians have been wanting to do this for a while. And what Ivanov said was that the, the Russians were developing these intermediate-range systems because they were worried about China, Pakistan, uh, Iran... And other other kind of systems in that in given Russia. Iran, whose plants they were building. Yeah, right. well, the one reactor yeah. was here, but yeah. but but, it, but, it, but it's an interesting. It's an it, it poses an interesting sort of strategic question in, in the sense of like, do, do the Americans really care? And if so, what should we do about it? Because you know we can we can. T- I mean, the Russians. Somebody asked. Um, apparently, somebody asked. Uh, if not Putin, I think it was Lavrov at the Munich Security Conference about. You know, hey, what's going on here? And he basically blew off the question. It was Evo Dalder. Um, yeah, I wasn't there. I had it reported. But it just, just that that. Well, know, do we do we actually care? And if we if we do, what do we do about it? But if we don't, actually, what the, what opportunities does it present? Moscow's position for some time has been clear. Putin said that they may consider withdrawing from the INF in two thousand seven, and consistently for many years has said, why is the case? Only the United States and Russia are the only countries in the world prohibited from deploying these weapons. Uh, my response might be, well, gee, I'm in NATO, you're not. Um, and, I don't think you'd like that. Uh, <laughs> well, I've never been in a meeting with him and don't plan to be. But uh, I have been in meetings with Lavrov, but he has never mentioned this particular treaty. I mean, they've been sending nuclear signals for a long time on a variety of fronts, whether it's this or other things that are reported in the press. And I'll simply say, again, I would pay good ac- you know, good money for access to 
the meeting summaries someday of what they think in the Kremlin. You know, they sent this nuclear signal and the United States didn't say anything. They sent this nuclear signal and nothing happened. So either you're encouraging them along the track that they seem to have adopted or you're not. And I think there is some complicity if you sit back and say, uh, this is just Russia. They do weird, stupid things. No one understands, even though facts are facts, even in Russia, why they do what they do. But they did the same under the ABM Treaty. Well, Krasnoyarsk radar is not an offensive system. So there's a little bit of a difference no, here. No, but nonetheless, the they, were, they were sliding around the treaty. Well, uh, my understanding for many years as a Russian scholar has been... <laughs> Uh, that uh, one should always request the record of reconciliation between the English and Russian texts because the Russian texts will generally require much broader latitude, as in five verbs for every one, whereas one verb for every one in English. So I'd like to move on to something far more important. That is, what is everyone drinking? And we'll start with uh, we'll start with Bridge. Uh, I'm just having a glass of, of red wine, uh, uh, Italian You're red. Simple man, humble simple man. man. Humble man. Humble pleasure. Simple man wine. in a, in a <laughs> knit tie. <laughs> no, not a knit tie. I am not in a knit tie. Water and something else. Okay, we'll leave it at that. That's cute. Um, Plymouth Martini. Uh, an old friend. Uh, a real standby. Yeah. Never disappoints. Yeah. Um, I had one with your uh, your uncle. Uh, oh, you did? Right? Oh, okay. And uh, it all worked out very well. Now available, by the way, in in the United States, in navel strength. Uh, a long time. It's you can swab the deck with it and swab the swabs with it. <laughs> it's like cauterize wounds. Uh, yeah. Disinfect. <laughs> now available in navel strength. Why it's navel strength, which is fifty, which was one hundred and six proof. Wow. That's Russian standard. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think it's Russian standard. For the real, the real, the real deal. Yeah. So there it is. Usha. Uh, I was drinking a gym, gin gimlet, excuse me, but I need a refill. Oh, well, we got to wow. fix that. <laughs> we will fix that. Stanley? I'm drinking a, it was going to be a Sam Adams, but they didn't have it, so I think it's a flying dog or something else. All right. <laughs> it's it's, like it's a beer anyway, right. yes. Yeah, the problem last and time too, you, you? Were, you? You were talking about the naval drinks. Now, the big advantage of going on a British ship as opposed to an American is they do have liquor on board. Yeah. And still, I don't know when we went all really mental still. on that. I don't, yeah. I don't know when that yeah, happened. Because I was well, on a British uh, army base in Afghanistan, and they didn't have a liquor there. No, I'm sorry, is Winston ships. Churchill's famous comment on the Navy that's run no, the no, last no, it's, it, uh, it goes no, back no, to It thing. goes back to Nelson's Day. Seriously. No, I believe that. Um, that uh, they all got their issue of rum, yeah. and yeah. and it's still the same. Seems but so I've been on British nuclear subs, and you, you've, got, you've got liquor on well, the Well, that makes sense. I'm, uh, it was, and there have uh, been no accidental Was there alcohol the one that ran aground? What was going on there? Was it we just a little bit of a Braveheart moment? We'll Could have a drink. But, uh, <laughs> and Ryan, our host. I'm, I actually switched it up. Um, today I'm having a Johnny Walker Black. I don't usually do the oh, blends, but uh, I was yearning for... Uh, when, when when I was in Helmand, I met with an Afghan police chief whose father was a former communist, and so he has us over for lunch, and he breaks out the Johnny Red, which you know is popular in that part of the world. And I wasn't surprised that he was drinking it, but then this old guy came in with the beard and the full regalia, and you know he looked like a you know an elder. He was an elder, and he comes in and he pours himself a drink, and I said you know through through the interpreter I said oh you're drinking. And 
It's a private setting. It wasn't a public setting. And he looks at me and he says... Until now. I've been... Well, I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> uh, and he looks at me and he says... And this is the exact way it was translated for me, interpreted for me. He says, I've been drinking since you were... A, since before you were a tinkle in your father's balls. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat down and I yeah. shut up. So, uh, but we interviewed... I don't know if you guys saw our interview with Senator Kane on uh, Monday, and he, he cool. gave a, the great best answer we had, actually, in our five-question series so far when we asked yeah. what he drinks after Long Down the Hill. He said, uh, Virginia Gentleman Bourbon, never mix, never worry, which I thought was a great, <laughs> great answer. So, um, Usha, I want to ask you something. Obviously, nuclear issues are still very important and definitely very complex from what I've been hearing so far, but it just hasn't been sort of the sexy topic in D.C. for a while. It's starting to be again. As, as a younger person who came into D.C., it sounds like you were looking to work on these issues. What about it appealed to you? That's a good question. Um, I think part of it is, in fact, that it is not a sexy issue. And, you know, I think that, you know, when you, when you get to D.C. and you see that there are, in fact, a lot of people, as this room is a testament to, working on these issues when, you know, you've grown up never thinking about them in an international relations context ever, it is kind of intriguing. And so I think that you know, that sort of contrarian impulse, you know, what's going on here and, you know, why, you know, how can I get involved is, is part of it. And then I think that um, another part of me, and I've actually asked that same question to a lot of people um, who I've worked with who are, who are sort of my age, another part of me would actually dispute the premise of the question because some people that are sort of my colleagues in, uh, you know, in the fellowship that I started off in D.C. and have said, what are you talking about? Nuclear issues are still huge. I mean, what, you know, what issues are we dealing with other than, other than Iran, other than sort of our various interests with Russia that are all sort of undergirded by the nuclear issue? And even, you know, you could sort of dispute this, and I would at the, uh, now the Iraq war was sort of very much uh, driven for, for some people by this, you know, this WMD argument. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm inclined That's to great. agree with you about, uh, you know, they're not sort of the sexy issue. And, you know, if you walk into the White House, they're probably not at the top of the list. But I think that for a lot of people, they are still very important. And, uh, and you know, I think that's cool. That was a great answer, actually. And this is why you're, this is why Warren the Rock's pieces are so great. It's because she finds the logical inconsistencies in the questions that are offered her. Clearly. And nails them to the wall. Um, well, that's great. So, And can I add one more thing oh, yeah. about news? It's a nice break from cyber. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just cannot. I cannot let alone a certain. Amen. Oh, that's okay. Amen and uh, amen again yeah. because uh, there are a lot of times when a new conference or panel I've been at tries to get into cyber, and no one really knows what the hell they're talking about. Well, no one know, knows what they're talking about. I mean, and we know that nukes. We, we know it's existential. Nukes. We know yeah, yeah. the entire planet can be wiped out. Right. Well, I find and, that and cyber it, people. Sorry, go ahead. But the, and, and I, I suppose you, you hear this argument this, the, mm -hmm. from the cyber people. Yes, you know the digital Pearl Harbor. God help us. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that. But we've never actually. I've never. But, but I find that real cyber, cyber pros. I haven't had ex extensive and sort of uh, uh, you know contact with them. But when I have had contact with cyber pros, they tend to be sort of like uh, it's getting a little exaggerated. It's sort of the. The more amateurish that are sort of ah, it's the cyber. You know what I mean? Over, overly excited. It probably reflects our own, yeah. you know, sort of social anxieties more than anything else. I don't know. Science. And why isn't it called digital? Quite, I don't know. If you spend any time in California yeah, yeah, exactly. and you go into the sort of tech corridor where people live and work on this stuff, and you say the word cyber, everyone starts giggling. Um, I think it, it stems from a difference in generational treatment of private and public space, a different generational treatment of what should be on and off limits, um, and the more you connect to the net, the more on limits you are. So, I mean, anyway. 
They're, they're, I agree. There's one, one piece is much more about nukes than it's, in yeah. my opinion, about it. Really not immediate? I'm sorry, the, the actual novel? Or, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm Th- Thomas Ridd, good friend of mine in King's, the name of his book is Cyber yeah. War yep. Will Not Take Place. Yep. Uh, i heard that book is very good. Yeah, it's, yeah Thomas is Brilliant. one of the most thoughtful people I know, actually. Wow. He's just okay. very, very smart. Um, so I want to talk about the Iran agreement and sanctions, and that's, you know, it's a big complex issue, and it's going to take us... It would take us more time to do it justice than we have left, but um, where do we stand here? We have... And you're looking at me. Thank I'm you. looking at you, Tom. We have Hill, the Hill pressuring the president with the bill. Why, why don't you take it from here? So, S1881, uh, which has been much maligned by some, is a first draft of what might be eventually, eventually enacted by Congress within the current Congress. So, at the end of 2014, we have an election... November, which is the end of this Congress for all intents and purposes. Uh, The bill is impressively supported by a large number, a bipartisan number of senators. Uh, And it will not be what emerges in in final form, but I would hazard a guess that something will pass this year because we will see the expiration of the six months that has been allotted to people to figure out. When when was the actual start date of the six months? Oh, uh, that's a very good question. You could take it from six months from when the joint plan of action was published by the yeah. European Union, or six months from when the Iranian foreign minister says. Uh, I'm going to leave that aside just I because. I think the date is January 20th, is it not? Maybe. But even then, the date there, was, a, well, but, there but, was an agreement that the six months could be extended. This is a little well, right, tricky, though, the, because uh, today or yesterday the Iranians said. <laughs> Here's our detonator to the to the International yeah. Energy Agency. Um, that's not going to help your case if you're against if you, sanctions. Well, and also uh, if and you're it's not also, trying to make well, a nuclear weapon. I'm not going to name names, but many former, well, one former administration <laughs> official in this administration has said to me multiple times, well, one, when we were having coffee, uh, that uh, Congress was right the other time around on Kirk Menendez when it passed 100 to 0 in the United States Senate or something like 99 to 0. Um, And that's quite something when you see an administration get rolled that hard on something. Uh, That may or may not happen again in the future, largely dependent on what comes through in the next few months. The IAEA's joint plan of action is different. Sorry to be so formal about this, but they have an obligation to implement safeguards in Iran. They have legal obligations. They've now concluded negotiations on the first step of what they'd like to do, which is basically getting back to the to the work plan that Albar and I published a long time ago, 2006-2007. It will be the case, though, that if Iran really wants to make a clean break with the past, it will do more of this. Say, here's my detonator. I really wanted nuclear weapons. They're not doing that. They're consistently saying, we never wanted nuclear weapons. Um, Islamic law, which is something Ron, or Ryan, pardon me, knows a lot more about in Iran than, than I do, forbids not us not Shia as much. But forbids yeah. us from having nuclear weapons. Uh, I, I really wish everybody then read more closely the Sunni text, if that's the case. But you don't do that a lot in some parts of Iran, I hear. Um, Any part, yeah, uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, the, the Shia Twelvers and their apocalyptic scenarios don't add a whole lot of, of consistency or or I should say confidence, and the fact that they may not want to end the world and bring about the next imam. But I'll be very succinct in this regard and stop here. Um, a lot's going to come to light in the next few months that will not support the case that no more sanctions should be enacted by Congress. And that may, that, that may be the case. What I think the interesting 
interesting thing for me is, is this a uh, unjustified or inappropriate infringement by Congress on the President's ability to conduct foreign policy? Um, I'd like to hear from yeah, everyone on this. Uh, well, you, you, you'll hear from me. <laughs> and, and you worked on the Hill. So. My view is a little bit more jaded, and that's um, who gets the right to decide in this republic? And the president can decide to veto something unless it passes by more than two-thirds in both chambers sure. pursuant to the international or the uh, uh, the um, Immigration and Naturalization Service versus Chada, which is a famous Supreme Court case. Yeah. If it passes by more than two-thirds in both chambers the first time around, he will have a hard time vetoing it. And um, I don't know if you count votes that there are two-thirds in both chambers, but there are some people who would like to see him veto it. Let's be frank, we're going into an election cycle. Um, so I'll just leave it at that and claim no special knowledge in this regard. I'll be very interested to see now as an outside observer what but, happens. Uh, but surely the real question is not whether or not there's going to be a veto or anything, or whether or not there's more sanctions. It, is the agreement that was made going to lead to a cessation of... No. It does not stop Iran from doing centrifuge exactly. R&D, exactly. which Therefore, is all they've been working on for the last, well, absolutely. 10 years at least, so, as far as I So know. what have we achieved? If you take the view that as long as it's quote-unquote safeguarded and they have a right to peaceful uses, then you will say that uh, we can verify the peaceful uses. Um, what Iran highlights for me anyway is some of the gaps in our knowledge. When you take the playbook from Iran, Iraq, and North Korea combined, and my real fear is the Iran plus N or N plus one country in this regard. Whether it's Burma or anybody else, people can make advantage and have learned a lot. Human beings aren't stupid uh, about the loopholes. Well, most of them. With you, totally. With you, totally. So, I mean, I worry that this agreement may or may not have given up given it up on enrichment. And enrichment, um, you know, the UK and the United States, we did it in how many months? So uh, knowledge is a damned hard thing to control. Whether sanctions are an appropriate response or not, that's really a decision for the elected leadership of this country and the president to determine I'm not one of them anymore and never was. So uh, I can only say, having advised every one of them to one degree or another, including the president and the vice president, who were members of the committee I worked for, that I really hope they have their eyes open. My, my point with regard to that is that it was sanctions that brought them to the table. As I said, a former administration official told right. me Congress <laughs> was right. Sanctions Congress also to was table. told they were right multiple times. And by it, it seems so, so odd to me to say, well, now we've brought them to the table, we will go. ease the sanctions, the very fact that brought them to the table. Bill, what do you so think? So to me, no. Very nice to ask. No special knowledge, nothing. But you're my you know, mentor in all things. <laughs> How am I? But I've I noticed that John Keegan, wait, under, underneath your, your paper, you've got that John Keegan, which that's totally you yeah, had recommended this to me. Yeah, it's a lot of and the Peloponnesian in there. But, but no, but isn't that? <laughs> no, 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 it's You're totally unrelated to our topic. I understand, but that's <laughs> worth uh, a shout out. Yeah. All right. I am so reading. I am reading Fields of Battle. He's by not John quite Keegan. as good as Max Hastings, but he's close. Uh, it's a Wars for North America. This is my bedtime and Metro reading. Have you read Matthew Arnold on the Oxus? I have not. Versus Iran and Tehran. So the natural division, at least between Turkey 
and Aryan Iranians, which has existed for a while. Well, wait, but but, but Stanley, like, I'm I mean, sorry, I just have to mention this because it's it's Matthew Arnold. Read it. All right, well, I will check it out. But I mean, On the sanctions office. have clearly been effective, and we want to maintain sanctions, right. and potentially we want to we want to turn the screws a little bit. But it seems to me logically that you know. It's like an escalation theory. You want to give your adversary a dignified way out, right? I mean, that that a continuing push in the direction of further, uh, you know, for, for it, the idea is to find a, a sort of a profitable or, or an attractive balance, but that it doesn't logically mean that we keep keep going in one direction. I mean, maybe, maybe I don't know the Senate bill well enough, so maybe it's the right. It's difficult to right see the good approach. answer there because I I see both points. I'm sorry? It's difficult to see the good answer here because yeah. you, you have sanctions. You bring them to the. You brought them to the table, and then right. if you keep the sanctions in place, they'll be like, "Fuck you! Why are we right. sitting at this table?" Well, um, without the cursor, it's a game. I'm, so I'm how do you know what the other person's thinking? So you so, got to keep the pressure. Right, on. You have to look at what they're saying and what they do. And like I said, um, well, wait, but a long-range you, missile test doesn't necessarily right. build confidence. And then, what would you want to put on a long-range missile? And just, supposedly, just put, your yeah. biggest adversaries are. Well, I think Iran is playing yeah. a, a similar. Uh, domestic politics, but much more deadly domestic political game than we are, is because they're right. trying to reassure their hardliners. Well, mm. uh, obviously, their hardliners well, bring a the, new. Is, is there anyone in Iran who's not a hardliner now? I'm sorry. I just, I, well, but we don't know that. It's right? actually I mean, if, you, if you do polling, Americans are America is the most popular country or, by music and culture. But then, if you ask yeah. about like our military deployments or, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Glad we're Ryan, getting you're, you're, you're getting a, you're getting an important point, which is that. Um, Thanks, Bridge. As, as usual, you're yeah. but um, uh, that that we you know we don't want to be played for fools, but we also want to give ammunition to people who are counseling moderation. Now, actually, it's important to be tough when you're you know I was talking about this actually in the Asia context just today that actually it, it can strengthen quote unquote doves or moderates in in a potential adversary to actually be tough at certain points. But then you also have to you have to show. That cooperation with us is valuable. So you know what that balance is. I don't know, but um, you know we, we don't want to. We don't. We basically don't want to completely undermine Rani. It seems to me. You know, though. now maybe Rani is a fake. I don't know. I don't know. But it seems like we should at least try out whether he may be the route to a more, uh, you know, more conciliatory. Uh, Iran, because what's the alternative? So uh, anyway, that's it. I'm going to. Uh call it here okay because we're just at about time this was great there's so much more to talk to we're also going to be posting on one of the rocks a contemporary nuclear strategy reading list that the participants in this podcast are going to put together for us uh i was understanding saying there'd be no homework (laughs) (laughs) or math (laughs) (laughs) there there won't be any math that part's true there is homework anyway thanks all for joining us and thanks for listening everybody thanks ryan thanks 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 very much